the world's opinion, popular as it might be, it's popular to them, isn't it, is rarely a reliable source of truth. If there was a way to summarize the battle every week in preaching the word, it is to get God's people to know this. The world's opinion, popular as it might be, is rarely a reliable source of truth. Many claim today that because you cannot measure and study something, therefore it must not exist. Of course, this by definition, science cannot render judgment on the theory of evolution either. The origin of life falls outside the parameters of scientific method. They cannot be repeated, observed, tested, or falsified. This is why secularism is clearly a cultural system using striking ideas to foster collective action and influence its members to focus on collective ideals with missionary zeal. Secularism is, despite what they say, in every way, a classic religion. It's just one that denies the relevance of the supernatural. Within the last few decades, a, a, a host of new atheistic thinkers and authors have really come on the scene. Very popular, like in the writings of Richard Dawkins. He often wins standing ovations among secular students and professors with things like this, saying, quote, the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction, jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, uh, megalomaniac, capriciously malevolent bully, end quote. No wonder secular humanists view their view of man doesn't come under that any kind of scrutiny like that. No, they have a very high view of man. Although in their worldview, we are technically evolving animals, continually progressing onward and upward towards some form of biological and social perfection. progressing onward and upward towards some form of biological and social perfection. Hmm. Seculars believe we are capable of controlling our own evolutionary development, too. One scholar noted, today in, the, in 20th century man, the evolutionary process is at last becoming conscious of itself and is beginning to study itself with a view of directing its future course, end quote. So with this view of man and of yourself, well, is it working out well? Is our society becoming more loving? Or do we go between extremes? In generations. And haven't we gone from the extreme of not talking about racism to now everything is racist? 
Are people in need of less meds today? Is mental health on the decline? I mean, if a high view of man is so helpful and and evolving, where is the proof outside of the hyper-privileged elites? Who, by the way, always know what's best for us. Why is the good news of Christ in Christmas not great news to most today? Well, based on that, it makes sense why that's not received that way. Paul Tripp said something. He said, $10 is extremely good news to a poor man, but would not even get noticed by a rich man. The promise of healing is wonderfully good news to a very sick woman, but would not even get the attention of a woman who is in good health. One of the primary purposes of the incarnation of Jesus the Christ is to humble each and every one of us. Only when we accept the very bad news of Jesus' birth, uh, you heard me right, will you then be excited about its very, very good news. Good news is only ever good news to people who know they need good news. It's bad news because we need Jesus. It's good news, good news because the Father sent the Son. Let's take our Bibles and turn to a great book of the Bible that bridges for us the Old and New Testaments to reveal that Jesus is the one promised to ancient Israel from of old and therefore worthy of the whole world to trust and obey. Let's open to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew's Gospel chapter 1. We're going to be in verses 18 through 25 this morning, and it will help you to have the Bible opened in front of you as we go through the sermon this morning. I'll give you a second to turn there. Matthew 1, verses 18 through 25. Again, let me set the context. This is on the heels of that great genealogy that connects Jesus with the promises to Abraham and to David. Hear now God's holy word. The birth of Jesus Christ came about this way. After his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, it was discovered before they came together that she was pregnant from the Holy Spirit. So her husband, Joseph, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her publicly, decided to divorce her secretly. But after he had considered these things, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife because what has been conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you are to name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. See, the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son and they will name him Emmanuel, which is translated, God is with us. When Joseph woke up, he did as Lord's angel had commanded him. He married her, but did not have sexual relations with her until she gave birth to a son. And he named him Jesus. This is God's word. Amen. 
having shown that Jesus has the correct scriptural pedigree to be the Messiah, Matthew now narrates uh, the events here surrounding his birth. And the beginning of verse 18 is really the main event. It t- tells you the main event that he's talking about here. Look at verse 18. The birth of Jesus Christ. The rest of the passage is all about how it went down. According to the critics, the gospel writers merely adapted some of the familiar virgin birth legends to the story of Jesus' birth. But nothing could be further from the truth. Matthew's account, for example, reads as history. But it is history he could know and record only because God revealed it and accomplished it by miraculous intervention. Matthew's words are far superior to the immoral and repulsive nature of the secular stories he and other writers allegedly, quote, drew from. More on that in a little bit. Even though the fact of Jesus' virgin birth is clearly and concisely stated in Scripture, the unconverted mind of sinful humanity, as with all essential doctrines of the Christian faith, resists embracing the truth of his unique birth. And so they exercise faith in other things. Here's the central point if you're taking notes. The birth of Jesus proves again that salvation is by God's grace alone. The birth of Jesus proves again that salvation is by God's grace alone. Four ideas here from the passage to help us see this well this morning. And I've chosen to do this passage because I never want to just assume we don't need fresh equipping in what the Bible teaches about Christ, particularly the virgin conception and birth. Point number one, the discovery. The discovery. And this is going to be focused on verse 18. Joseph discovers the pregnancy, but as we discover as readers discover that God has once again revealed he is omnipotent. There's nothing like hearing a report where someone says it was discovered. You know what I'm talking about? I remember hearing, Mr. Connor, while changing the tires on your 2007 Ford Freestyle, it was discovered your brake pads and rotors are almost completely gone. I did not enjoy that report. Or, Mr. Connor, while looking at your blood work, it was discovered you have a food tolerance problem in a few areas. I was thinking, does McDonald's leave that much evidence behind? (laughs) Busted again. The text here says it was discovered by Joseph that Mary is pregnant. It was discovered during their betrothal period, their engagement. And it surprises Joseph and us The text reveals that it is a supernatural, though, pregnancy where God, the Holy Spirit, has created a life inside her. The Bible here wants you to see in light of the rest of the the Bible storyline. When we read God's word and we hear it taught, we too discover amazing things about God's power. And so God's salvation comes to us by his powerful grace. Just as there was no life upon earth until the Spirit of God moved in Genesis, so it is the same here. 
God the Spirit has created a life here inside of Mary, a human life. There's more to this. He's, it's not, he's not merely human. He's also God. He's eternal, not made. At this point of history, the second person of the Trinity has added to himself human nature, body and soul. But let me note here, if you, have a super, if you have a problem with the Bible's testimony of the supernatural here, what do you do with Genesis 1? If you have a you know, problem with Genesis 1, then how do you explain the faith it takes to believe that everything came from nothing? Well, the feeling here for Joseph is one, of course, say what, Mary? What'd you say? It had to be a shock to him. We don't know exactly how Joseph found out that his fiancée was pregnant, we can imagine the difficult conversations he must have had with Mary. I think we can assume that as she was told what was happening, that's when she told it to him. But I love how Matthew sums it up with all this awkwardness, with the understated phrase, it was discovered. They were engaged to be married. There was to be a time frame there of the engagement before the consummation of the marriage. They would spend time together. You can assume that's when the information came to him. And it's just interesting, isn't it, how uh, back then, uh, it wasn't a perfect situation, but the understanding was that there was to be purity, that sex was created for marriage. It's, you know, like you don't uh, use a, a, a teapot to go hammer nails into, into boards, right? You're using the, you got the wrong tool. It doesn't work. And humanity takes sexuality and uses it wrongly, applies it wrongly when we take it outside God's intended purposes in marriage. Today, where sexual activity is assumed among couples in serious relationships, Joseph and Mary had not been intimate, the text says. It happened before they came together. So Joseph, without the, the knowledge he was about to get here, clearly had to be upset. She told him it, she was not only pregnant, but her baby was a miracle from God, that God had witnessed this to her. Mary, are you serious? How could you do this to me? What do you mean? You're, you're still a virgin? That's impossible. Help me. And what we see here, how the text wants us to see that, of course, Joseph, a, a descendant of David, had to be, though, the adoptive and legal father of this child born to be the second Adam, as the Bible calls him. He would not have Adam's guilt upon him. He was conceived of the Holy Spirit in the virgin's womb. Most non-Christian legends of virgin conceptions were quite different and much more detailed and, by the way, crass. This is just very succinct, isn't it? It's just matter of fact. Other um, non-Christian legends go into much more crasser things. No one had relations with Mary. A miracle has occurred. Ancient mythologies and world religions counterfeited the virgin, Christ's virgin birth with a proliferation of bizarre stories and inaccurate parallels. The stories undercut, uh, they, they undercut and, and seek to minimize, isn't it very satanic, to minimize the uniqueness and profound impact of our Lord's birth. The Romans claimed that Zeus impregnated uh, Samel with a, without contact and produced Dionysius. Uh, Babylonian religion asserted that a sunbeam in the priestess Samarimus uh, conceived Tammuz, the Sumerian fertility god. Buddha's mother allegedly, allegedly saw a large white elephant enter her belly when she conceived the deified Indian philosopher. Hinduism teaches that the divine Vishnu 
after living as a fish, tortoise, boar, and lion entered uh, the mother's womb and became her son, Krishna. So Satan has propagated very sim tried to take the, some similarities and then confuse and distort everything he could to take away attention from the fact that from of old, in the words of Isaiah, it was always known the virgin would conceive. That Jesus would be born without sin. Here's some applications. Number one, consider the reasonableness of Christianity. Consider the reasonableness of Christianity. We all at some point have to appeal to a source of authority. Christianity is a reasonable faith. It takes faith to embrace secular humanism. A lot of faith, and it's not reasonable with, when you begin to scrutinize its origin theories, and they are theories. Christianity, Christianity constantly calls you and I to look at the design around us. Take a good look around you. Look at the grandeur of creation. Look at your own cellular makeup. It calls you to look deep into how you are fearfully and wonderfully made. Consider your own sense of justice inwardly. It calls you to consider the vastness of it all and the one behind that vastness, God Almighty. We are not here today because we are superstitious. That's an insult. Christianity is a reasonable faith. Number two, consider the power of God. The Bible reveals that God has all power, all knowledge. He knows all things because he has also decreed all things. And the laws of nature are simply the expression of God's will, but he has not revealed all his will in the laws that we discover in that. But Matthew reveals that this child has come to us by the power of the Holy Spirit. God has power to create life. He has power to act upon creation. And so Joseph discovers the pregnancy, but as we, we as readers, we discover that God has once again revealed that he has omnipotence. Do you revel in God's omnipotence? When you begin to pray and exalt the Lord in your quiet times, you ever just praise, Lord, you have all power and authority. You hold it all. Number three, consider the revelation of God. Consider the revelation of God. This is what makes special revelation from the scripture special. When we look out around us in creation, we can see what's called general revelation. We sang about it this morning in, we, in How Great Thou Art. The way everything holds itself in balance, the way we rotate around the sun, all of those things speak to creation. General revelation testifies, and so all are without excuse. But this, God's word, is what's called special revelation. God's word reveals to us things we could never discover on our own about God by ourselves. This section reveals God in action, taking the initiative. Remember, salvation is by grace alone. He's taking the initiative and in fulfilling the scriptures about the coming Messiah so that we would discover the truth about Christ and our need for him. 
Discovering the truth about God's mighty works comes by his grace. You should praise the Lord. You have a copy of God's word. Go home sometime and watch videos of people who, who weep just to have a page of the Bible in their hands. We're so blessed. And this is why we confess what we do about God's word. And the Bible says faith, faith in God, not in self, not an idol, but faith in God comes by hearing God's word. Of course, faith doesn't come by our unregenerate nature or by the flesh. It comes by the word applied by the spirit. That's why we preach the word. That's why we share the word of the gospel. Imploring people to put their trust in Christ. That's why we can confidently say that faith comes by the word. God's word announces that he made you. Maybe you're here this morning, you don't know this, and you need to know this. God made you, and he made you with dignity. He made you in his own image. He loves you. God's word reveals that, oh, he made you, but he loves you, and he takes care of you all the time. Even when you have thought so uh, carelessly about him, ignored him, and rebelled against him, he loves you despite your evil against him. And God's word announces that Christ came to save you if you would put your trust in Jesus God's only son. Everywhere people need God's grace. The need, they need the grace of discovering that God has acted and he has revealed his son to us in Jesus the Christ. Church, we need to thank God we have heard about Jesus and received Jesus by grace. Amen. The birth of Jesus proves again that salvation is by God's grace alone. Number two, the disclosure. The disclosure, verses 19 through 21, if you're taking notes, 19 through 21. In a dramatic story, we always wait for some major appearance, right? It can be Gandalf's appearance at Helm's Deep. It could be Rudolph on that foggy Christmas Eve. It could be when old man Marley appears with the salt shovel to save young Kevin McAllister's life. Well, the drama has been building up here. I mean, Joseph's in shock. It's not looking good for this, this betrothal, this engagement, this marriage. It was legal. It was a binding agreement of engagement. They were, there were ramifications to finding out your fiancé had acted unfaithfully. She could be accused of trying to trick and to lie. Could make the fabric of society unravel. It does unravel society when society lives immorally. And so Joseph was faced with a difficult choice after discovering that Mary was pregnant. Perhaps he, he thought he only had two options, divorce her quietly or flip out and try to seek justice, have her stoned. And sexual unfaithfulness, by the way, during betrothal was considered adultery and under the Mosaic law, it carried a heavy penalty. Let me pause for an excursus here, okay? Why were the laws so tough back then? Well, Israel was supposed to be a holy people who enjoyed the gift of God's presence, they wanted God's presence among them. They had to fulfill his law. When people criticize the laws of the old covenant, they are forgetting in that storyline that the presence of God was there in the camp and was there at the temple. So if they didn't obey the strict laws, judgment could break out. People are struck by those laws because they don't see God as holy. Huge mistake. God was not going to and will not dwell with a sinful people. 
So if a nation is starting to be com com uh, comprised of sexual immoral practices, that's a sign th that a nation is eating itself. When a nation stops taking fidelity and marriage seriously and endorses things like no-fault divorce laws, it opens itself up for all kinds of dysfunction and death. And by the way, the Bible reveals, too, that Satan hates the family. The world does not love the family either. They, they want the slavery of sexual sin. They want children in a one-parent home, and they want to destroy, dismantle the gift of gender. Am I telling you the truth? With people tearing each other apart like this, no wonder it was dealt with very seriously. And here we can learn that there's also there's a lot of grace for the humble. And so some repercussions for immorality are clearly, even in the eyes of Joseph, going to be too intense, and he had the right to pull back. And so the other extreme of fostering it and covering it up with abortion and myths like sex is merely a recreational thing is also unhelpful. By the way, if you are tired of that life, or if you're not sure why you are not more sober-minded about that kind of life, and actually dealing with the sadness of your own conscience, and how it actually does impact others to live sexually moral, especially children, um, then don't lose hope today. Because you need to hear that Jesus loves you, and that he has saved all kinds of people in this church out of immorality, and set their feet on a different path. And believe he will forgive you if you humble yourself and seek him in faith. Nevertheless, it is a destructive thing to society. Back to the disclosure. It's disclosed to us what kind of man Joseph is. And it is disclosed to Joseph what the facts are. So it's disclosed to us what kind of man Joseph is. And it's disclosed to him what the facts of the case are here. And here, just as Joseph is ready to divorce innocent Mary, and look at the kind of, but friends, what we see is the kind of man God raised up to be the adoptive father of Jesus. Verse 19, Joseph, Joseph did not want to humiliate Mary publicly. There's something in the heart right there that we all should aspire to and admire. There's almost like he has a sense of his own guilt before God Almighty. Because when we get in the mindset of wanting to humiliate someone else, we, we're not doing well. The text says he was a righteous man. His peers most likely expected him to expose her apparent sin, but true righteousness in Matthew's gospel is often characterized by compassion and mercy. And you see it most pointedly in Jesus Christ. You can't help but feel sorry uh, you can't, help, you can't make people feel sorry for their sin, is what I'm trying to say here. Only God does that by the Spirit. spirit. And, but however, we need a disposition towards, uh, towards you know, this right here, to any who would hear and respond. There are scores of people all around this La Plata Baptist Church who are sick in their sin, and perhaps now they might be ready to hear of God's design for the, for the home, for God's Designed for the use of their own sexuality in marriage. There are also those whom your pearls are wasted on and you have to move on from and pray for them and pray that God would bring hearers to your path. Notice the drama of it all. And look at the text. It says, An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, 
Don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife because what has been conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And there's the disclosure. Angels are powerful beings and they have revelation abilities. And we're not sure what the appearance of this angel was, was in the dream. But Joseph gets the word. And he's given a third option. Marry her, Joseph. Consenting to marry, Mary, most likely cast doubt on Mary's reputation. But in times like this, as one author put it, we have to let God take care of those things. Sometimes we may face situations where we are painted in a light that's wrong. Where we have been mischaracterized. But we have to let the Lord take care of those things. There's no need to be afraid of marrying her. Because it's true, Joseph, the Holy Spirit has placed life in her. The life created in her womb is not any mere human. He is also truth and he is truly God and truly man. Now let me stop here and do another excursus. A theological one. God is revealed in the Bible in triunity. The Bible affirms that the Son and the Spirit are God in the same way as the Father. They, are person, they as persons are of the same essence, but they are not the same person. The Bible reveals that the persons of the Godhead in exactly the same way and exactly the same degree. There's no degree in them. In the Godhead, in the persons, they are called God. They are equally omniscient, omnipotent, eternal, loving, just, and holy. The Son and the Spirit are therefore of the same essence. But the persons are three. Each has his own personal attributes that distinguishes him from the other. The Father is the unbegotten source of all things. The Son is the only eternally begotten Son. And the Spirit eternally proceeds from the Father and the Son. The Father gave His Son, the Son redeems God's people in the Spirit and dwells and unites them to God. The Bible reveals that the second person of the, of the Godhead, the Son, added to Himself human nature, body and soul, without sin, passed on to Him from Adam. And the divine nature is not altered, but He has added to Himself a human nature. Now people talk about difficult doctrines of the Bible intellectually. And often maybe they talk about God's sovereign election and man's choice. I understand that's, that's a tough one. That's a tough debate. But the one that blows my mind the most is how God could do this. This was the discussion of the early church, the incarnation of the second person of the Trinity. And let me say, I intend, as long as I'm your pastor, by the grace of the Holy Spirit, to guard this doctrine with my very life. And I want to tell you, you should do the same. The ancient Nicene Creed sums it up well for us and for our salvation. He came down from heaven by the power of the Holy Spirit. He became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. Why does this matter, Pastor Garrett? It's a typical American question. We want pragmatism. Shame on us. It matters because this is the Holy Trinity. It isn't just a doctrine, it's our very life. 
It's more than just a mystery or a mind-bending math problem. This is our God. This is who he is, as the song says. Who loves us and gave his son for us. Who loves us and gave himself for us. Can you hear me? Who loves us and lives inside of us. Throughout the centuries, people have tried to teach against this. They even have created extra scriptures and traditions, but they all have to deal with the fact that their portrayal of Jesus is in denial of both the Old and New Testaments. The Ebionites, who considered Jesus the greatest prophet but not God incarnate, well, that's still with us today, especially held by Muslims. Later, the Arians taught that Jesus was merely the first and most preeminent creature. This era is literally what the local kingdom halls teach, claiming to to ironically be Jehovah's Witnesses, and the Mormons hold a similar view. And while these heresies rejected Christ's deity, then comes docetism, denying his full humanity, and Jesus just merely appeared to be human. And this is today's theological liberal who wants to make Jesus more palatable to, to the world but waste everyone's time with a useless idol. It really is another religion. The Apostle Paul said in Galatians chapter 4, When the time came to completion, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then God has made you an heir, end quote. As one writer put it, the Trinity and the gospel have the same shape. This is how God saves us, according to Galatians 4, by sending his son and spirit. Our salvation hangs on these two sendings. Without them, God would still be a father, but he wouldn't be our father. He would still have a son, but he wouldn't have many sons. To know God savingly is to know him as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Anything less is sub-Christian. Put another name on it. Stop calling it Christianity. It's not Christianity. The Trinity matters because God matters, even if it doesn't strike us as practical. But yet it is extremely practical. The kind of love, the kind of God we have determines the kind of relationship we'll have with him. Either God is your all-sufficient joy, fountain of joy and love with an inexhaustible, inexhaustible supply available to, to you and for you anytime, or you view God as the one who created you and saved you because he was lonely and he needed you. Is your God the Unitarian God of Arianism? The Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses of, of, of modalism that T.D. Jakes teaches? Or of Islam? Or is he the biblical three-in-one? Have you known the love of the Father through the Son by the Spirit? Friends, I, don't, I can't mentally grasp the Trinity. Neither can you. But I, by his Spirit, I know that testimony of the Word and the Spirit that it is true. And I receive it by, by grace through faith. I understand that this is plainly taught in God's word. It's not trying to even be uh, sneaky about it. It's every, once you see it, you cannot unsee it. The God of John's gospel was never lonely. 
the God of, of John 1.1. Where it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Does that sound like God was lonely in need of making us to fulfill Himself somehow? No. He has brought us into relationship with Himself through the Son and by the Spirit. Okay, theological excursus over. Back to this. Verse 20, note how Joseph is called a son of David. By the way, both Mary and Joseph belong to the house of David. Old Testament, Old Testament prophecies indicated that the Messiah would be born of a woman, Genesis 3, of the seed of Abraham, Genesis 22, through the tribe of Judah, Genesis 49, and of the family of David, 2 Samuel 7. Warren Wiersbe noted, it's worth noting that Jesus Christ is the only Jew alive who can actually prove his claims to the throne of David. All the other records were destroyed when the Romans took Jerusalem in AD 70. Isn't that something? Circumstantial? providential. Verse 21, she will give birth to his son and you're to name him Jesus. Jesus, as you know, the Greek form of the word Joshua. And he tells you what the name means because he will save his people from their sins. That's what, that's what the name means. God saves. Billy Graham said, when he was speaking of Jesus, Graham said, when Jesus was born of a virgin, he was born with the cross darkening his pathway. He had taken on a human body in order that he might die. From the cradle to the cross, his purpose was to die. Jesus, beloved, saves not from boredom. He doesn't save from anxiety or a lack of self-esteem. Hang on, we'll give it a second. Jesus saves here from the text says from our sins. He's, he doesn't save us from boredom. I hear a lot of preachers saying, hey, you know, they speak to the people's felt needs. You just need to, you need Jesus for that particular need. I, I generously and once I understand what they're saying, but primarily we have not preached the gospel. We have not declared that Jesus came to save us from sin. Sin means our rebellion against God. Yes, we have boredom and anxiety and lack of self-esteem and all those things, although I think we've, we've got a lot of self-lovers in this country. But he saves us from spiritual enemies, especially from sins. In the Old Testament, there were all types of saviors for Israel. But Jesus is the unique savior. They, those were shadows. He's the reality. He saves us from more than mere mortal enemies like David did. He saves us from eternal wrath. He saves sinners from sin because the wages of sin is death. And we all need Jesus because we've all sinned. We have denied God's rule. We have all failed to thank him. We have failed to glorify him. And we have failed to worship the one who's given us our lives. We are so rebellious. We try to invent ways to sin. Give us the internet. Give us apps like TikTok, and we will find a way as humanity to pervert it. We invent ways. Look at ways parents refuse to nurture and discipline. Look at the way children rebel against their parents. Look at the way our youth have no sense of God and no sense of the eternal. 
in their view. Look at the way we mess up our national debt, our corporate debt, our personal debt. Look at the diseases we create, the currency uh, that mankind manipulates, the stupid dark confessions that we yell out in society as if it's gloriously true, like love is love, and we've given no thought to what we've just proclaimed theologically. We are self-consumed and, as the Bible reveals, deserving of judgment and hell because our ways are evil in God's holy sight. And so people may not like the term sin. They think that's a Victorian term. Well, the better term maybe to use is the one evil. We have become, in our sin, we are evil in God's sight. It's not just some person on TV or a caricature, but as we stand before holy God who made us, we stand evil in our sin. Spurgeon said, the first link between my soul and Christ is not my goodness, but my badness. Not my merit, but my misery. Not my standing, but my falling. Not my riches, but my need. And Jesus comes to visit his people, not to admire their beauties, but to remove their deformities. Not to reward their virtues, but to forgive their sins. Oh, does does our land and our virtue signaling land need to hear that message today so desperately? So quick is our culture to put forth our virtue and put up a fake image and a photoshopped image of ourselves constantly that we think that Jesus came to admire us. We need to be the ones who are the desperate ones coming like those dirty shepherds to the manger to admire the sun. Joseph, you are to name him Jesus. God saves. Jesus came to earth to offer himself as the only payment acceptable to God for your sins. And you have to see your need of him. And you you today must turn from yourself and turn to the love of Christ and cast yourself on the one who lived and died and was raised in your place. And if you do, he'll save you. The birth of Jesus proves again that salvation is by God's grace alone. Number three, the demonstration. The demonstration, verses 22 through 23. So 22 and 23 really now is talking to us again. You see the the conversation towards Joseph, but now here's a note for the reader. It's a note to us as we're reading the text. It tells us that the miraculous conception and virgin birth were always a part of God's plan promised in the Old Testament scriptures, quoting in verse 23, Isaiah 7, verse 14. During Isaiah's time, Judah's sad king, Ahaz, feared his reign would soon end because of the threat of the attack from the north. And so God gives the word to Isaiah that God would provide a miraculous military intervention to save Israel. And the prophecy was immediately fulfilled when a young maiden, a young virgin, married and gave birth to a son named Emmanuel. The same sign also held promise of a future virgin who would bear the messianic figure named Emmanuel, meaning God with us, picked up further in Isaiah 9, as you heard read this morning. It's fulfilled in Jesus, that he will do, God saves, and who he is, God is with us. And so Matthew concludes his gospel with the same theme when Jesus promises to be with his disciples. I I am with you, he says, in in the Great Commission, even to the end of the age. And so the Father's plan of redemption has come. The beginning of its climatic phase, the Spirit's words and prophecy to Ahaz, though Ahaz set up the Emmanuel principle, now comes to fulfillment. The real Emmanuel is here. 
the eternal Son has entered the world of humanity as fully man. This is how Jesus could be both fully human and divine is what this passage is about. His father, in essence, was God. Through the work of the Spirit, his mother was the fully human woman, Mary. As fully God, Jesus was able to pay the eternal penalty for our sins, which finite humanity could not atone. If you and I were set to pay the penalty for our sin because we are finite and not infinite, we would suffer eternity in hell. Because, and as fully human, he could be our adequate representative and substitutionary atonement. Again, the good Mr. Graham said, the scriptures teach that he did not have a human father. If he had, he would have inherited the sins and infirmities that all men have had, since that which is born of the flesh is flesh, John 3. Since he was conceived, not by natural means, but by the Holy Spirit, he stands as the one who came forth pure from the hand of God. He could stand before his fellow men and ask, only Jesus could ask, which of you can truthfully accuse me of one single sin? That's John 8. He was the only man, Graham said, since Adam, who could say, I am pure. There was a, when Adam was created, he was created in complete innocence. But when he fell, he plunged all of us down with him into sin. Jesus being the second Adam, he passed the test. He never sinned. You know, there, there was a survey of, quote, unquote, and this is a big term, evangelicals. And there was a, a, quite a high percentage of people who testified that they believed Jesus sinned. And to those pastors of those members, I want to say, you have failed. And those churches have failed to guard the gospel. That's not the testimony. We have a sinless Savior. That's why he's called the spotless Lamb of God. Have you read the Old Testament? Do you know the New Testament? What kind of church are you going to? If you believe that about Jesus, you're not a Christian. If you believe, knowing what the Bible says, that he is the sinless Son of God, and you're saying the same thing about him that the wicked Pharisees were saying, you are in trouble. You don't know the Christ. You did not receive that from the Holy Spirit. God's word testifies that Christ without sin. It was always promised to be that one. If we honestly probe our minds, we have to admit there are mysteries about the incarnation that none of us can fully understand. But Paul speaks of God manifest in the flesh as a mystery in 1 Timothy 3.16. And this is the mystery we preach. Here's some application. Remember that God's word is a testimony to Jesus. When you read the word, read it with the expectation of Jesus in the Old Testament and expectation of his return in the New Testament. The word is a testimony to Christ. Number two, praise God for his rescue of us in himself. Again, we preach a gospel of grace alone. Only God can save us from God. Only God can save us from God. And only God's love can save us from God's just wrath against our sin. Doctrine matters. There are no works in salvation. Works are the fruit of our salvation, not the root. God did not look down time and find you more noble. No. He decided to intervene. He put you where you were supposed to be to encounter him. He saved you by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise him. For his rescue. Number three, 
Let the incarnation amaze you and spur your faith. Let the incarnation amaze you and spur your faith. Today, you are perhaps here today filled with worry. Maybe you're filled with cynicism or you're just a sour pants today filled with criticism for everyone around you. Well, today is your day. Jesus loves you. The second person of the Trinity entered into this stinky world filled with stinky people like us, not to condemn us, but to save us and to bring us into our one true purpose, and that's to fellowship with God. Amen. I don't like staying in the stink. How about you? Jesus can take us out of it. Today, I want you to talk about how that we how the truth of his incarnation and his rescue should be impacting your words with your family, with your friends and your co-workers. How the incarnation, the incarnation of Christ transforms your interactions and your attitude and your service. How does the incarnation transform you? Last point. Here we go. The birth of Jesus proves again that salvation is by God's grace alone. Number four, the decency. The decency, verses 24 through 25 now. The decency. Look at the actions of Joseph. Joseph did obey the Lord, the text says. Let's see what those actions include. Everything just kind of flows from that. He married, look at the text, he married Mary because this was God's command. And what a great plan to be a part of. Note too, he did not have sexual relations with her during this time period to fulfill the word that Jesus was indeed virgin born. He waited on the Lord. I got to tell you, isn't that striking? Today, today we swim in the cultural waters that waiting for the right time for sex is weird and oppressive. I respect the self-control of Joseph. Make these kind of men great again, right? You know, parents, let's do something radical as we parent at home. Let's train up our young people to learn self-control. Amen. It starts with their hearts. If we don't teach them self-control at the table with their sexuality and in view of, of their life, we are messing them up, friends. We are messing them up. We need to teach them self-control. And we need to point them, this is what God calls us to do. Young men, look at me. Anybody can go out there and just be a slob and never try hard at anything, never exercise control. Everybody's doing that, and anybody can do it. But the man of God who has the fear of God in him wants to please the Lord, walks in the fruit of the Spirit, and one of those things is self-control. I'm amazed at the work of God's grace in Joseph's life. Joseph is a weirdo in today's culture, isn't he? What do you mean? But this is the fact. To make this, back to the text, to make this supernatural conception and birth perfectly clear, he, had, he says Joseph had no union with her. He did not know her intimately until she had given birth. And no, Mary did not stay a perpetual virgin. She had other children by Joseph. Just to be clear, I don't care what the Vatican says. She is not a perpetual virgin. That's myth. That's silliness. That's the waves of doctrine that toss people all around. It's not true. It's absurd. 
the other action of obedience he does here. He named the boy Jesus. It was the father's prerogative to name the children. And the emphasis on Joseph naming Jesus at the climactic moment of the birth account highlights the act of adoption by Joseph. Makes Jesus his legal son. I named him as the Lord told me to. What faith we see in Joseph's life. Trusting that God would watch over them. He remained not only faithful to his wife, but to the Lord. He showed courage by ignoring the ugly rumors swirling around town about Mary's pregnancy, as I would imagine. And he valued God's plan above what others might think of him. This is a, this is a look at a good man. A man who God is at work in. Yes, he was a sinner. Yes, he needed Christ. But there's something striking about a godly man, isn't there? Praise the Lord. All of this decency really highlights the greatness of God in the hearts of his people. We don't have it in us. It's, nat it's not natural to us to live selfless, loving lives. It's natural to us to live selfish, self-centered lives. God's at work here. Let me conclude with this. <clears throat> have you been changed in your heart by God to live like this? To live sober before the Lord? Have you met Jesus, the Son? Do you know yourself to be a desperate sinner in need of Jesus? His name means God saves. Call on his name. Live for his name, church. Pray and ask everything in his name. Train up your family to know his name. Share his name with the lost. His name is Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we're saved by your grace and transformed by your grace. And we pray, God, that today by your spirit, you would embed these truths deeply upon our hearts so that we might glorify you. And for those here today who don't know you, Lord, they would be under great conviction and know that there's hope if they would bow the knee, if they would turn to Jesus. And he will receive any sinner who repents, who would turn to him in faith and cleanse them of all their sins. We love you in Christ's name. Amen.